Alleluia, Christ is risen. risen I'm going to preach today at this table because our scriptures today are about a table. They're about table fellowship. From the beginning of God's people, God's people have been defined by those who eat meals together. And during the Exodus, when the Israelites are in the wilderness being formed in their identity, God gives them strict instructions on how to eat. The books of Numbers and Deuteronomy have long lists about the foods that Jewish people are supposed to eat and not supposed to eat. And on a certain level, there might be health reasons for this, like if you eat pork that's not properly cooked, you'll get parasites and it's not safe to eat shellfish if you don't know the local tides and the local seasons. But deeper than this, there are rules in those books about even the dishes that touch those unclean animals are to be thrown away and broken. And the result is that Jewish people are unable to have meals with non-Jewish folks. And there becomes a sense in which God creates these rules for the people of Israel at this point in history so that they will only eat with each other, so that they can become a tightly knit community formed as God's people. And then, of course, Jesus takes this idea of God's people eating together to a whole new level at the Last Supper when he shares the first communion, his body and his blood with his disciples. And from that moment forward, table fellowship, who shares communion together becomes the mark of who is part of the church, who is a true disciple of Jesus. We've been reading the book of Acts since Easter. And the book of Acts asks this central question, who gets to be a disciple? Who gets a seat at this table? Who gets to be a disciple? And if we're going to ask ourselves who gets to be a disciple, we should probably start with the 12 that Jesus picked to start off with. So I have this definition. I thought about it. I was like, okay, Jesus' disciples are righteous, God-fearing Jewish male believers called by Jesus. If you look at the 12, you can say this about the 12 disciples. But if you've noticed, since Easter, each week, our lectionary, our readings each Sunday, have gone through each of these adjectives one by one and said, really? Is this what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? The first Sunday after Easter, Laura Kutsona was here preaching, and she preached about Thomas. Thomas, uh, who is literally known as Doubting Thomas, right? A guy who's like, I don't, I don't believe Jesus is resurrected. I'm not going to believe it until I can touch the wounds in his hands. Jesus shows up and says, okay, Thomas, if that's what you need, you can do it. And so in Thomas, we see that Jesus draws a line through the requirement of believers. And two Sundays ago, we heard about Paul, or as he was called back in the day, Saul. Saul, who went around beating up followers of Jesus, persecuting the church, and yet Jesus shows up to him on the road to Damascus, calls him to be a disciple, and gives him a new identity as Paul. And so, through Paul, Jesus draws a line through the requirement of being righteous. And last Sunday, we heard about Tabitha also known as Dorcas, who is explicitly called a disciple, even though she's a woman. 
And so Jesus, through Tabitha, draws a line straight through the requirement to be male. And today, we hear about Peter going to have dinner with a Roman centurion named Cornelius. Spoiler alert, Cornelius is not Jewish. Yeah, he's not Jewish. But Peter goes and he has dinner with him anyway, even though I've just established we got two whole books of the Bibles with all sorts of rules about why you shouldn't do that if you are a follower of God. And so when Peter comes home, not home, when he goes back to Jerusalem after having dinner with Cornelius, the other disciples, all of whom are Jewish, because Jesus was Jewish, all of them freak out. You had dinner with Gentiles? Literally in our, in our scripture today, we hear them say, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? To say we might have drawn lines through a lot of folks so far. But Peter, Cornelius, this guy, he's not one of us. He's not Jewish. And, and right, there might be a certain level where like clearly we've got to cross out Jewish because as we look around this room, I don't think any of us are Jewish. So clearly that's a requirement that gets crossed off. And I might want to just say, hey, the message for today is don't be racist. And yes, that is true. And especially after the horrific mass shooting that happened last night in Buffalo where a man went around targeting African Americans, it bears repeating that if you hear nothing else from the sermon or from the scriptures today, let it be this, that God's love includes people of every race and every nation. But I also want to be clear that the earliest followers of Jesus, the people who said, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them, they were not racist either. At least not in the way that we think about racism today. Because modern racism has to do with genetics. It has to do with the color of your skin. It has to do with things that you can't change. In the ancient world, they didn't have that concept. In part because the Mediterranean had people of all sorts of skin tones mixing with one another constantly. And partly because they didn't have a modern conception of genetics. So instead of racism, what they had was ethnic divisions, and they had fierce and violent ethnic divisions. But as compared to race, ethnicity is defined by things that you can change. It's defined by the language that you speak. Your ethnicity is defined by the foods you eat. Your ethnicity is defined by your rituals, your cultural practices. And ancient Judaism wasn't particularly interested in going around and making converts, but they said, look, doesn't matter where you're born, doesn't matter what country you're from, what ethnicity you grew up in, if you want to become Jewish, you're more than welcome to become Jewish. You just have to adopt the entirety of Jewish culture, and that means eating only the foods that Jews eat, and it means making a little bit of sacrifice, especially for the men, a little snip of the tip. Anyone can do it, right? To say it's like uh, Lutheran congregations in Minnesota saying, oh yeah, sure, we, we welcome people of every race in our congregation. You know, they just got to make sure to bring a cheesy hot dish to the potluck and uh, only sing Johann Sebastian Bach in church and, and better not raise your hands in worship or, or say amen during the pastor's sermon because that's disruptive, you know. <laughs> people of any race can do that. Oh yeah. 
The trouble is it requires becoming ethnically Scandahoovian and people of every race may not want to do it. But here's the other thing, right? Today we think of our culture and our heritage as maybe personal preferences that have been passed down through generations. But for those early followers of Jesus who are Jewish, their culture is not a personal preference. Their culture is a commandment by God. Their culture, the foods that they eat, the cultural practices, the rituals that they engage in are literally God's law written into Scripture. For as long as I have been alive, there has been a culture war in this country, not between people of different skin tones or of different ethnicities, but between people who think fundamentally we as a society should live in different ways. That is perhaps more close to what is going on in our scriptures today where we are encountering a culture war. And if you think food and circumcision has nothing to do with the culture war that we are fighting today, I dare you go, to go into a county diner and order a quinoa bowl with hemp seeds and goji berries and see what kind of reaction you get. And if you think that circumcision has nothing to do with our culture war today, for as long as I have been alive, every time I open up a national newspaper, someone is fighting about what we should do with our genitals, which is literally what circumcision is, a fight about how people should use their genitals. We're still fighting this fight 2,000 years later. We just made the terms of the debate a little bit different. But people are still convinced that they have divine righteousness on their side and they will not stop fighting this fight till their dying death. When Cornelius, a Gentile who is described as a God-fearer in Acts chapter 10, which means even though he's not Jewish, he is interested in coming and learning about Judaism, maybe attending the synagogue services. When Cornelius is interested in Judaism but refuses to stop eating pork, refuses to get circumcised, what that means to the other disciples is he is a man who knows God's law and refuses to obey it. And why would you want someone in your community who knows God's law and refuses to obey it? Why would you want to invite someone over for dinner who is an unrepentant sinner? The disciples say to Peter, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them. They're saying to Peter, Peter, our community is supposed to glorify God. You might have let a lot of people in here, but we have to draw the line somewhere. So explain yourself, Peter. And Peter does. He explains himself step by step. He says, look, I was praying, and then I had this vision from God, and and." A picnic blanket came down from heaven and there was all the animals on earth, including all the ones we're not supposed to eat, like reptiles and, and turtles and like shellfish. And God said, Peter, you should kill these animals and eat it. And Peter says, oh, by no means, Lord, for nothing unclean or profane has ever entered my mouth. And God said to Peter, what God has made clean, you shall not call profane. And Peter said, this happened to me three times. I had the same vision three times. And then there was a knocking at my door. And I opened the door and three Gentiles were there. And they invited me to go to Cornelius' house and have dinner. 
And the Holy Spirit said, go with them. Do not make, and I understood, Peter says, I understood in that moment I was not to make distinction between them and us. And he goes to Cornelius' house and he has dinner with these Gentiles and he tells about Jesus. And he says, as he tells Cornelius and his family about Jesus, he saw the Holy Spirit descend on him just as it had descended on Peter and the other disciples on the day of Pentecost. And Peter says, if God has given them the gift of the Holy Spirit, who was I to hinder God? Who was I to hinder God? It's not a rhetorical question for Peter. He's a guy who's worked pretty hard in his lifetime to hinder God. It may be one of these things, it's true, he says, nothing unclean or profane has ever entered into my mouth, but Jesus said it is not what enters into the mouth that profanes, but what goes out of the mouth. And Peter had plenty of profane things come out of his mouth. I don't know if you remembered on the night Jesus is arrested, three profane things come out of Peter's mouth. Every time he's asked if he knows Jesus or is one of his followers, he says, I'm not, I do not know them, I do not know what you are talking about. If being someone who fears God is a prerequisite for being a disciple, there was a time when Peter feared things far more than Peter feared God, he has to cross that one off the list too. But what's incredible is, on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus knowing that Peter would deny him, washed Peter's feet, declared him clean, and then fed him at his table to say Peter's doubt Peter's fear, Peter's denial, it could not hinder God calling him as a disciple. And Peter wasn't the only imperfect disciple on that evening. Our gospel reading today, John 13, it started by saying, when Judas went out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man has been glorified and God has been glorified in him. Why is God glorified in that moment? Why is Jesus glorified in that moment? What has just happened? What has just happened is Judas has gone out to betray Jesus, to sell him into death for 30 pieces of silver. But even knowing Judas was going to do that, Jesus washed Jesus' feet. Jesus welcomed Judas to his table. Jesus gives Judas bread from his own hands, for he has called him to be a disciple. Judas's betrayal could not hinder God calling him to be a disciple. And so when Peter sees the Holy Spirit descend on Cornelius, descend upon the Gentiles, Peter realizes in that moment that what unites disciples of Jesus is not that they are righteous, is not that they are God-fearing, it's not their Jewish identity, it's not their male identity, it's not even that they are believers who have no doubt. What unites the followers of Jesus as disciple is that Jesus calls them, that and that alone. Jesus called Peter from his fishing nets. Jesus called Thomas to touch Christ's wounds. Jesus called Saul on the road to Damascus to end his persecution. Jesus called Tabitha 
to new life out of the grave, and Jesus called Cornelius to invite Peter to dinner. And so, when the other disciples say to Peter, our community is meant to glorify God, you've got to draw a line somewhere, Peter does. Peter draws a line through every single prerequisite to be a disciple of Jesus and leaves only one, that they are called by Christ. It is Christ alone who decides who gets to share in this supper. It is Christ alone who decides who is his disciples. It is Christ alone who decides who eats at this table. And this table more than any embodies that truth. Because I want to tell you, this table, it is beautiful, but it is flawed. There is an error. There is a mistake in this table. Some of you know what it is. If you look closely, this table was lovingly hand-carved just for this congregation. And on here, it's got a passage from Scripture about Jesus feeding the multitudes with seven loaves of uh, bread and how he breaks those loaves and gave them to his disciples <laughs> the word right here carved into the front of this altar it's supposed to say disciples but it's missing the letter c it doesn't say disciples it says disciples and how perfect is that say of all the words to have an error in them how perfect that it is the word disciple for jesus after saying that he has been glorified because not that he has an exclusively perfect set of disciples around his table, but that he has loved his imperfect disciples. He says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples. Not by your righteousness, not by your fear of God, not by your Jewish identity, not by your male identity, not by your obedience to all the commandments, not by your perfect faith. He says, by this Everyone will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. For he has given us a new commandment that we love one another as he has loved us. And how did Jesus love us? Knowing that we would betray him, that we would abandon him, that we would leave him to die, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, welcomed them to the table, fed them with his own hands. He called them his disciples. Three weeks ago, Laura Kutsona came and preached and she invited us to wrestle with what does the resurrection mean in our lives. Today, for Peter, what the resurrection means is no matter how hard we try to hinder God, no matter if we deny him or betray him, no matter if we nail him to the cross and bury him in the grave, we cannot hinder God when he calls us to be his disciples. And so, for all of you who think to yourself, I don't really know why I'm here this morning. Maybe my mom dragged me, or maybe I feel residual guilt from when I was a child, or maybe I'm, you know, playing in this strings group. I don't really belong here. To you, I say, who are you to hinder God? Jesus has called you here through any one or all of those voices. Who are you to hinder God? And for you to say, you know what, I don't know if I'm worthy to be a disciple. I don't know if I've got the skills that it takes. I'm certainly not perfect. I invite you to look at this altar. 
May this altar be for us the model of what it is to be a disciple, what it is to be a disciple. (laughs) This altar, it is not perfect. It is flawed. It shows it right there on its face, but it was made for this place. It was put here for this purpose. Who is it to hinder God? And so it does faithfully what God has placed it here to do. It welcomes everyone to this table and offers them the body of Christ and the bread and the blood of Christ and the wine without judgment, without precondition. All it knows is that Christ has called people to this table and who is it to hinder God? And so may we learn from this table what it is to be a disciple, what it is to be a disciple. And in this world which is so eager to draw battle lines in a culture war, may we do a truly radical act and draw a line through every prerequisite for table fellowship. May we draw a line through every prerequisite to share a meal together. May we be united around this table, not by our race or by our culture or by our ideology, but only by the Christ who has called us here. And may we leave this table with one purpose, to learn to love one another as Christ did, starting with ourselves. For who are we to hinder God? Alleluia, Christ is risen.